0: So you might be wondering, well, how exactly do I accomplish this purpose that God has given to us? And you accomplish this purpose by simply knowing and enjoying God. That's how we do it. We accomplish it by delighting in Him. And so that is a word for that is worship. That is what we were created for. Now, there is one small problem with you and me, and we all share this same problem We have been created for this incredible privilege, purpose, and yet the problem is that we as humans are in slavery. We are in bondage to our sin. We are in captivity. And so because of these shackles that are around, not our hands and feet, but is around our very soul, because of this captivity, because of this slavery, we are unable to run to God and to enjoy Him. Because we are kept by our taskmaster, uh, the evil that's in our own hearts. Satan, who is the enemy of God, would keep us in captivity and would prevent us from being able to run to and to enjoy our father. And that is what the book of Exodus is all about. And that is why we've been studying it the last several weeks here in our faith family. is to learn about redemption, how God pays the price to liberate slaves from their captivity. And the book of Exodus points to the ultimate reality in our lives, spiritually pointing to Christ, and how God has a plan to reveal his glory by saving a people from their slavery. And so the only way for humans to fight against their simple desires is to first be redeemed, to be set free from their slavery, so that we then can be free to run to God and to enjoy Him and to fulfill this incredible purpose that He has given to us. And so we've been studying redemption, which is the gospel in the book of Exodus. And so today, as we continue this, we are talking about the same story. The Israelites were enslaved in Egypt by the taskmaster, Pharaoh, and then God supernaturally liberates them. And, and they leave Egypt, not by their power, but by God's power. And then the Israelites see their enemies dead on the shore of the Red Sea when God defeated them. And then they go out, and what do they have in front of them? Well, now that they're finally free. A big desert. All they can see as far as the eye can tell down to the horizon is just this big, hot, painful, uncomfortable Desert. And God calls them to go walk out into this desert, and they're hungry, and they're thirsty. And we saw last time how God satisfies their soul's hunger and thirst, and he rains down bread from heaven, and this is pointing to our Savior Christ, and he feeds them. And they're just learning about trusting God. They still had to learn in this relationship. They were in slavery. They're liberated. They're following God. They're learning to trust him. They're learning. This is not automatic for a believer, but they're learning as they're redeemed how to trust God for today's bread and for all of our problems and to leave it in his hands. And so, yes, it's hot and it's painful, but they have their God with them in the desert. And then what happens as they're learning this lesson? Let's read to see Exodus 17, verses 8 and 9, next part of the story. See what happens. Let's see how things get better for them. Exodus 17, verses 8 and 9. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. You like that? Did things get better for them? No! No! They get attacked they, they can 't catch a break it 's like things keep getting worse for them, finding learning to trust God to provide, and the very next thing that happens is they get attacked. it gets worse, it gets harder again. Can you relate to this women uh, well let 's start with the guys because you know i 'm a guy so we 'll start there men. a lot of us are married in the room. Have you ever experienced a season at work where it's really busy, you know, really stressful at work and your boss is demanding and you're, you're trying to do your best, but man, it's hard at work and, and you're, you get home and you're tired and at the same time that there's this hard season at work, your kids, is like they're just not listening to anything you have to say and they don't obey and it's hard with the kids. And then at the same time that your car breaks down, it's like, ah. Oh, and it's frustrating, and then and you, you just want to relax, and then your wife comes and uses these just beautiful words that you, we all men love hearing, and she says, hey, sweetheart, we need to talk. You know those words, right? In other words, every guy loves hearing from his wife, and then all you can think of, man, is enough. I've had enough. I can't take any more. And then wives, I'm sure it's no different in your world. Have you ever experienced where you're in a a season that's stressful in your life and you're doing your best to keep the home and teach your children and care for your husband, but you feel alone and your husband isn't responding to you the way you would want him to when you just want to talk about what's not right in your relationship. And he's like, I don't want to talk about it right now. And so then you're frustrated and you feel alone and left out. And so then you are equally frustrated at the same time that you're having issues with other people in your life, too. And then all of a sudden, you women are saying, enough! Enough of this frustration. And then in the middle of this stress, in the middle of this discomfort, in the middle of the chaos in your life, and then... All of a sudden, both you and your husband, both of you, begin to feel spiritually attacked. All of a sudden, temptations begin to crop up. Now, it doesn't rain here much, but it did rain last week. But where I come from in Texas, it's amazing how you can have a well, there wasn't much grass where I lived in West Texas, but like what there should be grass in the field, but it hadn't rained for a long time. And then it rains, and immediately, you know, pops up first weeds long before you get grass you have the field just covered in weeds and they just overnight just pop up and that can happen in our lives too where overnight all of these temptations all this sin it begins to just pop me like well where's that coming from i haven't even had that struggle in a long time and all of a sudden now you're being attacked in the middle of this stress and because of that the enemy he sees that you are struggling Because he's invisible, but he's real, and he sees that you're having a hard time. And so right when you're weak, right when you're struggling, that is exactly when the enemy comes and attacks you. He wants to take you down. He's not playing around. He is not shooting blanks. He's using live rounds, and he wants to destroy you, your family, your witness, this church. Understand something. Satan does not want this church to succeed. He does not want you to succeed. He wants you lost in your sinful desires and tendencies, useless for the kingdom. With the bad marriage, he wants you defeated. And he wants our church to fall flat on our faces. He doesn't like this. And he attacks us right when we're weak. And that is exactly what's happening here with the Israelites. They're under attack. And we're going to learn about how they were successful in truly following God. What is true success? Because in our world, I use the word success, and I'm sure that some of you already had an image in your head of what success is or what success looks like. I'm not talking about financial success or success in your career or educational success. Not talking about those kinds of things. Not even success in your family. All those are secondary. All those are means to the end of glorifying God. What I'm talking about is what is true success. God-centered, gospel-centered, Christ-centered success. What is it? What does it look like? And what does this text today in, in Exodus 17 and 18 reveal to us about living a life that is successful pursuing God? Individually and as a church. What is it? Well, the main idea from this text that we'll look at, it, so you have it here in front of us we go in. We're on a journey, we're going together. I want to mark it off for you. So the main idea is that those who are redeemed define success by their relationship to God. It's that simple. So those that are redeemed define success by their relationship to God. And we're going to see that in this text. True God-centered success. And there's three characteristics. The first one I want to give you here is, number one, is depending on God. And so number one, the first characteristic of success is depending on God. Let's read this text here, Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And Moses built an altar and called the name of the Lord. The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. What we see here is that the Amalekites were evil. Don't be confused here. They attacked a defenseless Israel. They were evil people that were out to destroy the the Israelites, and this was not just about military conquest of the Amalekites. Yes, that's what it was from their vantage point. But what you see here behind the scenes, spiritually, it was Satan was at work opposing God, opposing God's people, opposing God's purposes. So Satan was using the Amalekites to end God's plan of redemption, This is a spiritual truth that is being depicted for us here. And so when you struggle with depression, when you struggle with insecurity, when you struggle with lust, whether it's for power or whether it's for sexuality or whether it's for anything else, prestige or material possessions, or when you struggle with anger, when these things are happening inside of you, What you're seeing here is the same evil source of oppression that you had with the Israelites. It is Satan who is oppressing us and uses our own sinful nature against us by tempting us. He attacks us, but then we're the ones that succumb. Same evil source. This is pointing to ultimate reality. Of believers like us, redeemed by Christ, who must fight our sinful desires every single day. How did the Israelites fight against the enemy? What did they do? What is it that God used to them to be victorious? You had Moses with his hands stretched up to heaven, and Moses' hands were up, Israel was winning. And Moses' hands fell down because he was tired. Israel was losing. So these two men, her and his brother Aaron, helped hold up his hands. And that's when Israel won. Why is this so important? Because this is a symbol. It's pointing to something, a spiritual reality here. Moses' hands lifted up was a sign of prayerful dependence on God. It was a sign of prayerfully depending on God. And so there was a very powerful enemy that was attacking them, and Israel could not, on their own, overcome them. Someone more powerful externally had to come and sustain them and empower them so that they could be successful. And his name, that is pointing to, is Jesus, through his spirit. When we are depending on Him, but we must not be self-sufficient. We must follow the example here and tap into this power because that's what it is. It's God's presence. He was with them, fighting for them as they were submitting to Him and were depending on Him. And so it is our God who saves us and sustains us and through His Spirit then empowers us to live lives of victory, but we can't do it on our own. Not possible. We can try, but it won't work. And the key to understanding this section, the key for us to understand how this applies to us is in verse 15, where after this victory that God won for them, Moses erects this monument, this altar, to thank God, to praise him, and it says that there was this banner. Now, wh- what is a banner? Well, the banner was essentially a flag that had a symbol on it or an, an insignia. It was the king's emblem or, or the army's, but it was some symbol that was put on a piece of cloth, basically a flag, that was then put on a pole and was lifted up. And the soldiers would then carry this banner, this flag, with this symbol on it into battle. And the soldiers who were confronting the enemy would look up to this banner and they would remember who they belonged to. And they would remember who they were fighting for and how they would find their identity in belonging to this army and this people and to the king. And so their identity was wrapped up in this and it gave them hope. And it gave them courage to keep going and to keep waging the battle against the enemy. Because if that banner ever fell, then all hope was lost. The army had fallen and they were going to die or be prisoners. But as long as that banner was raised up and was floating in in the air, as long as that was happening, there was hope. The army had not lost and so they could continue to keep fighting against the enemy. And so God is their banner and he will not fall. This points to the cross of Christ. What is the banner for you and me? The cross. The cross is our banner. Jesus crucified. We have hope. And we have courage to face the enemy every day, to keep waging the battle, and to not give up because of the cross, because Jesus died in your place. And there's no greater display of love and mercy than the cross. God so loves you that Jesus came lived a sinless life, died on the cross for you, endured the wrath and judgments of God, endured hell literally on the cross, for you and for me and was powerfully resurrected. And now that banner, the cross has lifted up and now we have hope and we have courage. We are not defeated. We don't have to be defined by our temptations or defeated by our temptations. Not true. You are defined by the banner that is over you. And what is this banner? God is my banner. He himself is our banner. He defines us. He gives us hope. He's our everything. We depend on him. We draw near to Christ as we depend on him. What is your banner? What do you look to for hope? What are you looking up to in the battle of life for courage when life gets hard, and I'm serious here because I understand it's life is not always easy for anyone, much less when you're an expat. When life is hard, what do you look to? Where's your source of hope and courage? Why do you get up on Sunday mornings? Why do you, why do you wage the battle? What is it that is pushing you what motivates you? What is your banner? What defines your worth? What do you treasure most in life? What is the fuel that keeps your soul going to wage the battle against the enemy? We have ultimate hope, and it is Jesus And Jesus alone, he is our everything. And we can wage a battle because we depend on him. Jesus is our only hope. He is a glorious redeemer who died on the cross for us. And we have received grace. And grace, quite simply, is being treated better than what we deserve. We deserve death and separation from God. And yet we don't get that. We get mercy. We get forgiveness because Jesus paid it all. And why did Jesus endure that for us? Remember the purpose? To display God's glory. That is why Jesus endured the cross, to reveal God's glory, to reveal mercy, forgiveness, his grace. Here's the reality. We need Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're saying, okay, I'm just here for a holiday weekend Tapford Church is gone, but there's a lot of you that are visiting, and I'm so thankful for you. And it's possible that maybe you're here because someone brought you, but you didn't really want to be in the zoo attending worship gathering on a Friday morning. I don't pretend to know what what brought you here. But maybe you don't admit that you need Jesus. Maybe you think this is just a bunch of baloney and that you don't really need Jesus. And that maybe you, you don't know that you're desperate for him. But whether you admit it or not, whether you like it or not, according to God's word, every one of us is desperate for Jesus. We are because we're made for him and we're looking for joy. We have other banners flying over us and we rejected the one true one and then we're not fulfilling our purpose. And so, therefore, life just doesn't work. And the gospel isn't so much about your life working. It's about you being reconciled to God. And when you have that, then you will have success in life. And I'm not defining success by material wealth. I'm defining it by depending on God. That is success. Do you realize your desperate need for Christ? Maybe you don't. But today you can admit that. You can turn away from your self-sufficiency, and you can repent. You can place complete trust in God, and then you're going to experience true joy, forgiveness, and you'll have the hope and courage that you desperately need. When we enjoy the very presence of Jesus as we pray, as we read his word, as we spend time with him, it gives us the courage and the hope that we need to continue waging the battle against our sinful temptations and are just the reality that all of us have struggles and so success number one is depending on God number two it's dethroning false gods so it's depending on the one true God number two it's dethroning by dethrone, I mean to remove from the throne to take away from the throne the throne is where the king sits so when I say to dethrone I mean to take false gods off of the throne of your life and to put Jesus in his place, which is he be the Lord, the master, the king of your life, or you're submitting to him. And so depending on God and dethroning false gods. Let's read Exodus 18, next part of the story. Exodus 18. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses, his father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. How the Lord had fought is, brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, and where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other about their welfare and went into the tent." Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that they had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, "Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians.'" And of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. This is a remarkable passage. What you have here is Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. He has heard the news of Israel's miraculous deliverance from slavery. And so he comes to see his son-in-law. They had this amazing celebration and this reunion. And they're seeing each other. How are you? It's so good to see you again. We haven't skyped in a long time. And so they're seeing each other. This celebration. And then Moses tells them the story of the Exodus, chapters one through seventeen, what we've been studying. Moses recounts it of how they were in slavery, how they were redeemed, what God did, and how amazing and glorious God is. And then Jethro, who is described here as a priest of Midian, Jethro was a pagan spiritual leader. He was a, a pagan priest in the land of Midian. But then he hears the good news of God's redemption. He catches a glimpse of God's glory and redemption. And what does he do? He says, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. He says, and he brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. He put his complete faith in the one true God. He turned away from his idols, the false gods, and turned to God. He was transformed. His heart was changed. That's what changed him was hearing the good news that God saves his people. He gave up his counterfeit gods. Now, what is a counterfeit? A counterfeit's an imitation, right? A fake. Something that promises to deliver, and then it doesn't. It's not the real thing. So by definition, a counterfeit looks like the original, like the real thing. That's valuable. But it's not. It's counterfeit. It's a fake. False gods are just that, false. They're counterfeits. They look like the real thing, but they don't deliver. They promise you joy, but they don't deliver. They promise you comfort, they don't deliver. They they promise you that you're going to be happy if you give yourself to this false god, but it doesn't deliver. There's only one true god that delivers. We have to believe greater promises because sin gives us promises. Oh, enjoy me, delight in me, and I'll I'll make you happy. And we believe the lies from Satan. We must believe the truth of God's word that that sin is not going to satisfy, it's not going to make you happy, and that only God can believe the greater promise, which is why we read in Philippians 3 earlier in the service. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything else is just rubbish compared to the worth, the value of having Jesus. We must dethrone our other gods that are false in our lives and give ourselves wholly to enjoying Jesus. What is your greatest treasure? What do you value most in your life? Talking about success is kind of a theme here. When you think about success, is it in regards to your family? Maybe you're here today and you're not married, but maybe you're here and you would love to be married. Now, let me just give you a heads up if you're not married, just, just so you know. When you get married, some problems will disappear, okay? Some problems that you have because you're single and you're lonely or things along those lines that you think are problems, well, some of those might be gone. But guess what you're going to get instead? A whole bunch of new problems. New ones that you never even knew existed are going to crop up. And maybe you think, if I just get married, then I will have arrived. I will be happy. I will have what it is that I want. And So maybe you're defining success and true joy, and, and you treasure most the idea of one day being married. But those that are married know better than that. We know that it doesn't bring ultimate joy, but maybe as a mother, you are turning to your children. And maybe you define your children and you as a mother as your greatest treasure. And those children that are blessings from God have actually become idols to you, where you actually love your children more than anything else and you have actually defined who you are your whole existence is wrapped up in who you are as a mother and quite honestly you were made for jesus you were not made for motherhood motherhood is a means not an end it's a means to glorify jesus motherhood is not the end the end is jesus motherhood is a means by which you glorify jesus we must not get those turned around Fathers, maybe for you it's your work and you find the greatest value, significance, and your whole existence wraps around how you can provide for your family. Again, your work is a means, not to the end. The end is knowing and enjoying Jesus. Your work is a means by which you glorify Jesus through your work to provide for your family. Not denying that, but your primary value and your identity must not cannot be wrapped up in what you do won't won't work They can't be your idol you will not be fulfilled you will be left empty and hungry and thirsty on the inside hey i'll speak to myself here in the mirror for a second ministry success that can be an idol Success in ministry. Maybe you're a home group leader, or maybe you are someone that really finds your success and what you can do for God in ministry. And quite honestly, that's not the goal. The goal isn't how many people can I bring to Jesus. The goal is knowing Jesus and enjoying him. And then if you're doing that, I can guarantee you that he will empower you, enable you to bring others to Jesus. But those are means. The end is Christ. Christ. He must be our greatest value. Maybe you're a teenager, and for you it's independence. You can't wait to be out of your parents' home. You're so sick and tired of being under your parents' thumb and authority, and for you, you're going to reach the apis of existence when you finally are on your own. Guess what happens after you leave home? You pay your own bills. You fix your own car. You're going to fix it. I mean, you have to be responsible. Let me tell you something. It's not going to be easier when you leave your parents home. It's not. It's not. Here's the reality. Whatever age you are here today, the end is knowing and enjoying Jesus. Everything else that you have that are gifts are means to that end. If there was one thing that I could say to you about this, just in your mind think. What is that one thing in your mind that you hope is most in your future? That one thing. You said, man, I'm really banking on, I'm really hoping that this is in my future. Or or maybe it's, there's this one thing in my life that I just cannot live without. Whatever that thing is, is your idol, unless his name is Jesus. And what you hope most is that you have Jesus, and you're thankful that you have him. Everything else flows from there. True success is dethroning all of our false gods, like you see here with Jethro, giving up his pagan gods, and turning to the one true God, offering sacrifices, living for him as a, with a life of worship. And so true success is depending on God and dethroning our false gods. Number three, as we close, it's dwelling in God's word. Dwelling in God's word. I'm not going to read the rest. It's too long, but I'll just tell you here briefly that the next section, chapter 18, is used often by management books. It's very popular in the business world because what you have is father-in-law, new believer Jethro, talk to Moses and says, you need to delegate. You need to get organized. And so what you see here is a structuring of the leadership in Israel. And so what you see is greater organization and management for how Moses is able to lead a very large nation of people. It's not all dependent upon him. And so, yes, there's reorganization, and yes, there's management, but that is not the main idea. That is not what this is about, first and foremost. What you have here is that up to this point in, in history, God's word was not written down. It wasn't. It was only oral. And so God spoke to Moses, and then Moses delivered God's word, revealed God's will. And so what was about to happen one chapter later, the next part of the story is Mount Sinai, where God delivers God's written word. So God's people would have God's word in the wider sense. And so they were being prepared through Jethro's advice and by Moses to be able to receive God's word individually without just the one mouthpiece. It was about to get written one chapter later. And so the reorganization of the end of chapter 18 is to prepare them to be dwelling in God's word. And you see that in verses 15 and 16. And so here's what it says. And Moses said to his father-in-law, so he's asking him, why are you the only one that's leading everyone? Why are you answering everyone's questions? from morning till evening, and Moses said, because the people come to me and inquire of God. Not of him, the inquire of God. It says, well, when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and here's the key, and I make known to them the statutes of God and his laws. So we see here that Moses was revealing God's word and God's will one by one individually to God's people. He was speaking God's word to them so that they would know how to follow God and be successful in life, following God. And so he's saying, well, this is what I need to do. I'm the prophet. I reveal God's word. And so Jethro says, and he tells him how to be better organized, um, and look for verses 19 and 20. He says, now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring them cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. And so the reorganizing of God's people was so that they would know what they must do, so that they would know how to follow God. That's the thrust here, that's the point here. They needed to have God's word individually not just through Moses, but they would be able to know God's word for themselves. And we are so privileged that we have God's complete revelation written down for us that we can read. And just like I was preparing him to receive his word a chapter later, he has given to us a full revelation, and we must dwell in God's word. I'm just going to be honest with you. If, if you never read this, you're not going to be successful. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It it doesn't matter how much you work out your body. It it doesn't matter your career advances. It doesn't matter how great your kids turn out. I'm telling you the reality, according to God's word, is that you must dwell in God's word to have true Christ-centered success. You must. That is the only way that your heart is going to beat faster, Jesus is that you know him and spend time with him, find your joy from him, and that flows from God's word. Faith comes from hearing, from hearing God's word. If you want to have success in defeating the enemy, you have to use God's word to fight against him because this is the sword of the spirit. This is it, God's word. This right here, the Bible, is the voice of the spirit. This is what he uses in our lives for us to fight against temptation. And so when you get this temptation to look at something or do something or think something or act out in some way or have a bad attitude or yell at your husband or check out with your wife or be impatient with your kids or whatever it might be, when you are tempted to do something that would not reflect God's glory, you have to stop. And use God's words to fight against that, to say, no, no, Satan, no desires. I will not give in to that because when I do, it's going to cloud, it's going to muddle, it's going to affect, and it's going to damage my walk with Jesus. It's going to affect my relationship with God. It's going to hurt the intimacy. And so I don't want to lose God's presence in my life every day. And so no, no, I will not indulge in that. Because it's going to rob me of joy and rob me of a clear conscience before God. And I don't want that robbed because there's more joy in Jesus than in the fleeting pleasure of that sin. This is critical. We must be dwelling in God's word if we're to be successful. So when you feel those temptations welding up, we must fight like the Israelites fought. And like here, they had God's word, yes, through Moses, and soon the Ten Commandments would be written down and more laws that have God's word. Full application, this is pointing to what we have in Christ today with his word. This must be accomplished in community. You cannot do it alone. You need people in your life encouraging you as you're following Jesus. So don't even try doing it alone. So what is success? Quite honestly, enjoying a relationship with God. That is success. This, this, I hope, is liberating to you in that you don't have to try and work and, and, quote, be successful as a Christian. That's not the goal. You depend upon him. You dethrone the idols. You dwell in his word. And you let success look like in your life however God defines it. Does it really matter if for 70 or 80 years, Your life looks a certain way, even if in the world's eyes it's not really successful, when we have eternity waiting for us. And so we must live for not the temporal, but for the eternal. And his spirit will conform you to who he wants you to be according to his word. And so let's live for eternity and define success I hope you can think this with me, that when we think about success, you know what it is, really, when you just get down to the essence? When we die, and we stand before God, who made you, who loves you, and he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. That's success. Nothing else matters. So if you're here, and this is something new that you've not heard before, You can trust Christ, give him your life, turn away from your sin, repent, put your trust in him. His spirit will come inside of you and you'll experience forgiveness and joy that you've never experienced before. And if you're here and you do know Christ, but you've been struggling as all of us can, turn back to him afresh. And he'll receive you with open arms because he loves you. You pray with me.